Hey everybody, welcome to Ask Me Anything. My name is Matt Love. I am here with Reverend J.D. Greer. Um, and J.D.'s going to do uh, something you know you don't see a lot. He's going to tell us what's going to happen in the end times today. We're going to do a little futurology here. We have received this question a number of times. Most recently, we got it from a listener named Brandon. So, Brandon, thank you so much for sending in this question. So, J.D., clue us in. What is going to happen in the end times? Well, Brandon, it's a fascinating question, and one probably, just as far as people listening in, will probably get more response than anything else. I, you know, Ed Setzer always says, you know, if you look at the church's calendar, it used to always be that the biggest, the most popular subjects were either the end times or sex. He said, <laughs> it makes me wonder what would happen if you did something about will there be sex in the end times? Yeah, what yeah. kind of amazing conference would that be? <laughs> um, that's not the subject of this podcast, um, but just really, you know, what's going to happen in the end times? That's obviously a very big question. And I'll just acknowledge, I grew up in a church tradition that was, I would almost say a little obsessed with the second coming. Um, you know, on our Sunday school walls, we had posters with dates and pictures of dragons and names of different politicians. And we had our annual prophecy conference that was like, that was the best attended event of the year. For special Sunday night services, we watched, you know, these Billy Graham movies about the tribulation that were, at least in those days, late 70s, early 80s, like like Christian graphic violence, people being beheaded and stuff. We had our rapture board games, rapture bumper stickers. In fact, I see, still see some of those out now. In case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Uh, we made rapture jokes like there was no tomorrow. And I'll pause there to let that one sink in for listeners. Um, uh, you know, as a kid, I lived in perpetual fear of being like left behind, no pun intended. If for any reason I couldn't find my parents or they just didn't respond when I was in the house calling out to them, I'd run through the house yelling, mom, mom. And, you know, I'd, you know I'm just sure I was going to walk into a room and see her clothes had fallen neatly into a pile on the floor. Um, I had this recurring dream where the rapture happened. Uh, this is not a joke. I'm not... Um, making this up for fun. It, um, but in this dream that I kept having, I get lifted up to the top of the house. Um, and then as everybody else went on up to meet Jesus, I would fall back down to the earth, revealing that my worst fear had come true. My faith in Christ wasn't strong enough to get me all the way to heaven. Uh, and when the roll was called up yonder, I'd still be here. Um, then when I was in high school, there was a little book that came out that became instantly a bestseller, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. The guy who wrote it explained in the little preface, he's like, Jesus said we could not know the day or the hour that he would come back, but he never said that we couldn't know within a three-day window. And so he gave a three-day window in 1988 when Jesus, he said, was guaranteed to come back. It was a huge deal at my Christian school. Um, I was sitting with uh, my soccer coach who at the end of practice one afternoon was like, we're just going to sit here for 15 minutes on one of these days and just see if it actually happens. And he said, and uh, if it actually happens, we all get raptured, JD, make sure you clean up the equipment and put it back in the in the storage shed. Um, I didn't appreciate the joke because I actually was terrified of being left behind. Um, of course, that day, 1988 came and went. Uh, the next year, I kid you not, the author released 89 reasons that Jesus would come back in 1989. Um, I kid you not. He said that the reason for the miscount was he'd use the Gregorian calendar instead of the Hebrew calendar or something like that. I mean, that happens to the best of us, so... We all read that book too, but you know it came and went. Now I've since learned that that some of how we approach this topic it lacks some, shall we say, balance. But um, if I could be really charitable for a minute, um, and Brandon, this is getting to your question, I promise. There's one thing we live with that I believe that our generation of Christians is missing out on, and that is the earnest expectation of Jesus's return. Uh, my pastor would end almost every service by saying the word Maranatha, and it meant the Lord is coming. And he would say Maranatha, and it could be today. And we just, I felt like that could be true. 
Um, I realize that we got a lot of disagreements out there about the timing of Jesus returns and what phrases like thief in the night really mean. Um, I, I would like to think of them mostly as friendly disagreements. Um, I've got my own convictions. I'll explain those in a minute, but I want to make sure I emphasize what we have in common. And that is that we are to conduct our ministries and live our Christian lives with the awareness that eternity is real and that the Lord is at hand. Um, eschatology, in case you've you know heard that word or you, you hear me use it, it's just a fancy word for a theology or how we think about the end times. It might be one of the most, if not the most neglected doctrines in today's church, in the 2023 church. Many theologians um, I listen to almost find it embarrassing. You know, it's like the crass, uneducated uncle of Christian theology. And when he shows up at Thanksgiving dinner, you're embarrassed and you try to keep him at the end of the table where nobody will listen to him. Um, but th- think about this. The second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine in the Bible. The most talked about doctrine is the second coming. In the 260 chapters of our New Testament, there are 318 references to it. One out of every 13 verses mentions the second coming. For every one prophecy in the in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, his first coming, there are eight that talk about his second. And we have a whole holiday celebrating his first coming, but we barely mention the second one. Or consider this, almost every moral command given in the New Testament is tied to the second coming at some point. I remember my pastor used to say, how could we call this doctrine non-essential? I mean, it's in every chapter. Every command is tied to it. To miss it is to miss the whole hope and thrust of the New Testament. Surely I come quickly. That's how our New Testament ends. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Um, So I just want to emphasize before I I, I talk a little bit, real briefly about the different positions, I just want to emphasize that there's a commonality all Christians should have, and that is the imminence of Jesus' return and um, and to live with that expectation. That's good. Now, when it comes to the different, you know, kind of ways of approaching it, I, I would say there's basically, you could say, four positions. Um, some Christians believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, um, at which point a tribulation will begin, which is a seven-year period in which the Antichrist and Kirk Cameron do battle, <laughs> um, and all the Christians are raptured out right before that. That's called the pre-trib position. Then there's the post-trib position, uh, or some people call it historic premillennialism because they they try to say this is one of the oldest approaches, the oldest approach we have in the church fathers to the end times. And that is the idea, basically the same thing, that there's a tribulation coming, um, God will continue to work in the nation of Israel. They're a big part of that um, coming um, tribulation, but the church won't be raptured out before the church will be you know, raptured out or brought to Jesus afterward. Um, the major problem with that one, the challenge, there's a lot of it about it that appeals to me, is that it creates problems for the imminence of Jesus' return. I mean, could Jesus return right now, literally this moment? The Bible wants me to assume so, but if I know there's got to be an antichrist that comes, well, I don't you know, he certainly is not doing all the stuff he's done at the, you know, that you see at the tribulation. So it makes me question, like, I mean, could Jesus actually return? I feel like it, he couldn't. And that, that makes me question the imminence. That's one of the challenges. Um, then the other uh, two would be what we call post-millennial or amillennial. Um, both of those, I won't go into a lot of detail. They take more of a metaphorical approach when the Bible talks about the seven years and the thousand years. These positions typically hold that the church has replaced Israel for all the promises so that all the promises toward Israel that were made in the Old Testament, they've been fulfilled or they are being fulfilled in the church. 
And for spiritual purposes, that means there's no longer Jews. There's no longer a history or a future for the nation of Israel as a nation. Um, Now, I will say that's a problem for me as a Bible interpreter, and I'll explain that here in a moment. But let me note the positives of the post-millennial or amillennial position. Number one, it does preserve the eminence like we just talked about. I mean, with this one, you really, Jesus really could return whenever and bring things to a culmination. And the second one for me personally is I think these positions really help you see a lot of the spiritual dynamic meanings behind the imagery in in Revelation. When I grew up, Revelation was like this. I mean, it was like a weird you know, a sci-fi book and what are the locusts and the, you know, these are helicopters and just all kinds of, of crazy stuff. Um, you know, then I got a hold of some amillennial and post-millennial approaches to Revelation, and I started to see that that these things represented deep spiritualities about God and humanity. And and regardless of, of whether you take a, you know, pre, a pre-trib or a, an amillennial approach to the book of Revelation, you should see these spiritual dynamics that are at work in the imagery of Revelation, because that's how you're supposed to read it. It is a book that is supposed to, in fact, I will say that one of the the most enriching studies for me personally um, has been going through Revelation, not because I got my you know curiosity satisfied, but because of what it taught me about God and his majesty and Jesus and the gospel. Um, so those are your basic four um, positions. There's going to be different, you know, kind of minor variations, but you could think of them in those four categories. A friend of mine calls himself a pan-tribulationist, which he says means, look, I really got no idea, but I know it's all going to pan out in the end. Um, and maybe that's, that's where you are. Um, if you're curious, I'm actually, I, you know, I would say I'm in the pre-tribulational camp um, 80% of the time. Um, I'm sympathetic to several elements of the others, but um, I, I typically come down on that side. i give you three quick reasons for that. Um, number one is just the unconditional and straightforward nature of the promises that are given in the Old Testament about Israel. I mean, you know, when you look at the promises in 2 Samuel and Genesis 12, 15, 18, the ones given to Abraham, we're talking about an actual nation, an actual throne occupied by an ethnic Jew, an actual earthly kingdom. In fact, in Genesis 18, um, he actually gives the borders of the land. You know, he he says, this is what exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Much of what was promised has been fulfilled literally, like Jesus as a Jew on the throne. Um, So I assume that what is left will be fulfilled literally. Uh, Israel has never occupied the land, never has never occupied the land that was the borders of which were given in Genesis 15, 18 through 21. I remember one time trying to explain to a Messianic Jew this, the amillennial position and the look on their face. It was actually a conversation I had in Israel. And he was like, so all those things that Abraham and David and, 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 and we believe are literal, you're just saying that there are people who believe that you know, they, they just were, it was kind of a, a bait and switch. God said one thing, but he actually meant another. He said, that just feels like God deceived us in how, you know, he gave these really specific um, promises. I, I, I think that's a worthy question. Uh, second reason for me is it's just the way the book of Revelation is written. You know, Revelation, most Bible commentators will tell you, is an extension of what they call Daniel's 70th week. In the book of Daniel, he talks about 70 weeks that are determined for the nation of Israel. 69 of them happened before the Messiah, and then Daniel prophesies after the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off, and there's one week that remains. That week, you know, week in Hebrew just means seven. So that week of years, that's the tribulation, and that's essentially the backdrop of the book of Revelation. And if 69 of the weeks were about ethnic Israel, what makes sense that that 70th would um, would be there as well. And so when you read Revelation, um, the church doesn't feature real prominently. In fact, um, Revelation 4.1 is the last time the church is mentioned. You got you know chapters two and three, which are the seven letters of the churches. And then, um, you know, uh, Revelation 4 opens up with 
I'm saying come up here so people see that in imagery of the rapture. And then from there on out, Revelation is about Israel in the 70th week. I mean, when it talks about the 144,000, it even names the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, so that's my second reason is just the way that Revelation, the most straightforward reading of it is to read it as an extension of Daniel. And then the third one is there's a lot of things that don't make sense if the church has entirely replaced Israel and nothing is left in the promises of God for Israel. Um, for example, Acts 1-6, um, Jesus is about to ascend and the disciples say, at this time, will you restore the kingdom to us? Talking about them as Jewish leaders. Now, They've been with Jesus for three years, and at this point, they're still either post-tribbers or pre-tribbers, but they're definitely not post-mill or amillil because they still think there's a kingdom for Israel. Jesus does not respond by saying, guys, seriously, do you not get it yet? The church replaces it. He didn't respond that way. He just says, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen, but right now you're to be my witnesses. That actually, that 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 verse kind of reveals that the disciples definitely weren't post-mill or amill, um, and Jesus, you know, seems to affirm them in, in what they are. Or take verses like Romans 9, 4, where Paul makes a distinction. He's like the people of Israel. The advantage they have is, is they were adopted to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenant, the receiving the law, the temple worship, and the promises. And then he, in chapter 11, talks about the restoration of Israel and the, and the plan of God and what that's going to do for the world. Um, that seems to show that that in God's mind and, and the biblical plan, there's still a nation of Israel, um, ethnic Jews, and there's a, uh, a role that he has for them in his future plans um, in the salvation of the world. And so I'm not ready to say ethnic Jews and the nation of Israel have no more future because the entire New Testament seems to be pointing the other direction. So what do I mean by all that? The church is similar to Israel in that we are the people of God. Analogously, we are referred to sometimes as the spiritual Israel. That's true. But in many ways, we fulfill spiritually the promises to Israel. But, but scripture demands, in my opinion, that there remains a future for the people of God. That is Israel. So that's my answer to the post-millennials. And for all my post-tribber friends, you can stay and enjoy the tribulation if you want, but me and Kirk Cameron are going to go to heaven and have a great time. <laughs> Bottom line, y'all, there are various few points about, about exactly how the end times events described in the Bible are going to take place. I know what I believe, but I'll just acknowledge there are some very serious, godly, scholarly brothers and sisters in the church who believe differently than I about the timing of what will transpire. But no matter what, we know that Christ is going to return and that we are to be perpetually ready. I want to give you four things that will change in you, in your life, if you're living in that state of readiness, and that'll be on our next Ask Me Anything podcast. All right, thanks so much, JD. That's uh, that's good and and helpful and um, and yes, you know, it's a, it's a question if you're a believer and you're reading the Bible and Revelation and other places, it's a natural thing to ask, and so understanding how do we grapple with that. Um, so thank you so much. Um, there is actually going to be kind of a part two follow-up to this episode, all right, um, next time. And, uh, and like J.D. kind of mentioned, so what does it look like to live ready for Jesus' return? That's the question we're going to kind of follow up this question with next time. So I hope you are here next week for that question. Um, and then, as always, follow us on social media. And by us, I mean Pastor J.D., Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all great places to hear from J.D., and as always, leave us a review if you enjoy the podcast ratings and reviews. They they help tell people, hey, this is a good podcast. It gets the information out there. If you like this content and it's helpful for you, it's almost guaranteed it's going to be helpful for somebody else. So rate and review it. That'll help us a lot and help other people um, learn more about the podcast. So go ahead and do that real quick if you get a chance. And we'll see you next time. 
on Ask Me Anything.